If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Welcome back to Live Wild Podcast, everyone. You know, when it comes to stalking Western big game, especially with a bow in your hand, but it doesn't have to be a bow. It's bow, rifle, muzzleloader, shotgun, whatever you're hunting with. You have to do it in a way to not get spotted. You know, if I think about what blows a hunt, it's being seen, being heard, or being smelled by the game animal you're stalking. All those things have to go perfect. So this week, I'm going to break down a few of my stalking secrets to help you get into position unseen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cover my six best strategies for not getting spotted to help you slip into position on any big game animal. But before we do that, I want to share the story of a blind approach on some mountain goats in the mountains of Alaska. A few years back, my brother and I actually drew some awesome mountain goat tags off Kodiak Island in Alaska. It was, it was an awesome hunt. We both had a tag. He was planning on hunting with his rifle. I was planning on hunting with my bow. I'm not even sure if I've shared this story or not. Maybe some of you have heard this story somewhere else, but I'll kind of just talk about my portion of the hunt. My brother killed a goat and it was getting down to the tail end of the hunt. Now we had packed in we actually packed into a spot the first part of the hunt had horribly bad weather like just probably not a not a great day to pack in packing got soaking wet ended up not seeing any goats and then came back down the mountain switched places which actually worked in our favor because it was near a road system so we hiked back out that day were able to dry our stuff and then hiked back in the next morning to another spot and started the, the weather actually changed a little bit we were just chomping at the bit to get out and we knew that 
we had the option to, to come back down on the first day. But that next day, we were able to get in a different spot, started turning up goats right away. It was a fairly steep mountain. There's some pretty steep mountains, some pretty brushy stuff there. But got in goat country and started spotting goats. Saw a lot of goats, a lot of nannies. But we were looking for billies, mature billies. And so finally saw some. And I think I'll probably share my brother's part of the hunt in a different time. But he ended up with getting a goat and it was awesome. And I wanted him to, to take a goat first, even though I was pretty stoked to, to take one. It, it was awesome to be able to have him harvest one. It was myself, Makoto, who was our guide, and then my brother, Jason. So there's three of us on this hunt. As a non-resident, we had to have guides for this particular hunt. So Koda's a good friend and, and it worked out that he was able to guide us on it. So it, it was a really fun trip. Um, I might have even shared part of that story before. But anyways, when it came down to the wire, is is getting, weather was coming in. It was effectively going to be pretty much our last day to, I, I guess it would have been pretty much our last day to, to get after it if the weather came in like it was supposed to. Because once that weather came in, we weren't going to see anything. It was going to be very difficult to hunt the mountains. Probably would not have been successful. So we knew that this weather was coming in. It was like, all right, time to make some plays. And we'd seen goats. It just wasn't working out like they were moving or, or we couldn't get into position. So we ended up going after these goats and one ended up kind of crossing right above us and it just didn't work out. So we looked back on the mountain and saw at the very peak of this pretty nasty spot that there was a group of billies in this little saddle. And there was actually multiple ways to approach it, right? We could have approached it from below, but it was like we were exposed the whole way. They would have seen us coming. And, you know, the thing with certain mountain species, goats particularly, sheep as well, like they aren't necessarily worried about sound so much, like they hear rocks falling all the time. If they win, you, yeah, game over. But if they see you coming, it depends where, you know, like how much they've been hunted. And these animals had clearly been hunted a bit because... It seemed like every time they saw us, they spooked off into maybe not a long ways, but more like just unapproachable country. It doesn't take a mountain goat long to get away from a human predator, right? All they have to do is to get into some stuff that you just can't get into. Game over. And so they would see you. And even if they'd see you from a long ways off, they would just filter into that nasty stuff. And these ones were in some bad stuff, but we could still get around. So the, the easy approach would have been to just kind of go right up at him, but we would have been crossing this big scree flat, like just, I don't know, we, we would have been spotted. So all three of us like did our powwow and it's like, all right, we're going to go around and go out of sight on the backside of this mountain and pop over kind of like above them unseen. It just was, the, it was the best approach. The wind was blowing sideways and storm was definitely coming in. So we make our approach and there was a really sketchy spot. I, you know, out of, <laughs> I think Jason and Makoto were cool with crossing this certain part at the top of the mountain. It was like, you just kind of had to jump across this gap. That, like if you fell, you're dead for sure. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, this is cool. It's super windy. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't so keen on that approach. So we ended up finding like a little different way around. And in hindsight, maybe the other way would have been better. <laughs> like that, that kind of sucked getting up there. That's, uh, that's the thing I hate about mountain hunting, right? You just, there's like some sketchy spots. 
I try to avoid the real sketchy stuff now, but uh, we, we got up there. And then the plan is just to, to peek over the ledge and, you know, hopefully figure out where these goats are below us. So crawled up to the first spot. I was like, leave the bow. Well, actually, I think I had my bow on my back or crawled up without the bow and just to peek over the edge because I knew that if we'd be able to, if we stayed low enough, they wouldn't really be able to see us before us seeing them. First spot didn't see him. So we move around, continue up, and then crawl up, peek over. There's the goats. So we've got them, range them within range. The wind is ripping. I move back and draw back out of sight. That's one thing with bow hunting is that when most people get busted, it's during the draw. And I've talked about it a lot before, but like that is the that is the one thing you don't want to get busted at. If you can draw unseen, you got to do it. So draw out of sight and then move up to take the shot. The first shot I took, the wind, like the arrow didn't even make it to the goats. I actually got two shots. And I think that being unseen, like I slowly raised up when they weren't paying attention and shot. Well, later on, I I found out because I watched the video that during the, you know, probably it was probably in, I don't know, it could have been any time during the trip, but I think I had my, arrows and bows strapped to my pack 90% of the hunt because I knew it was like, I'll be out of time to take it off and, and stock in. And going up into this particular spot was super steep, but there was a lot of brush as well. And so being strapped on my pack, I actually think that one of the arrows had caught, I had my arrows up, which I think is the best way to do it. So, so the bow is strapped to my pack, the arrows up in the quiver, but lashed my pack and my stone glacier pack I had the straps on pretty tight and I think somehow an arrow had broken in the quiver or, or whatever during the hike you know one of the things like when I'm practicing I always flex my arrows afterwards make sure they don't break because if they break you could put the arrow through your hand or do whatever so I, I draw back and I shoot and halfway between the goat and my shot that arrow broke in half it was like you could just see the fletching fly one way and the arrow go another but it's so windy that they didn't really know what was going on. So they, they, something happened, but they didn't know what it was. So they're looking around. I had already ducked back out of sight again. Wasn't worried about getting winded. Reloaded, drew back, held for the wind and shot. Wind pushed it um, actually a little further forward than I would have liked. Hit the goat in the shoulder, but made, it, made the shot. The goat started going just bombing down the mountain. And I actually was hoping that it wasn't we were like i I was thinking like oh he's gonna fall over he started running toward the cliff so i was like i need to stop this thing before he gets to the cliff and grab my brother's rifle to shoot at him but (laughs) i didn't i didn't get him with the rifle he went over the cliff and yeah long story short at the bottom was a very mangled mountain goat right he was in this he was in this perfect grassy shoot and he ran and went off a cliff which sucked so we retrieved the mountain goat down on the other side we're also like man are we gonna be able to get this thing like (laughs) we didn't really know went down that chute and it was like a a nice thing was it was a good scree slide where the rocks just start sliding you just ride the scree down rode it down and got to the goat i think he he had both horns on which i've come upon mountain goats that you know on other people's hunts they've blown the horn off or or something like that but cape 
pretty tattered face, pretty beat. He, he took a pretty good tumble, unfortunately. But fortunate thing was we, we got him. So we loaded him up. All three of us packed him back to camp. And it was good timing because the storm was rolling in. We were able to pack up our camp and pack out that day. And it just like massive storm hit, which happens quite often in Kodiak, Alaska. And yeah, it was a, it was an awesome hunt, you know, a great, one of my favorite backcountry hunts. And anytime that I get to do a hunt like that with my brother also having a tag was pretty rad. Like I, I, re- I really, I've got the film of that hunt. We should make like a vault video for the YouTube channel at some point. I'll put that in the list for this year because it was, it was a great hunt, really fun hunt. But I, I think a lot of it is, you know, I think about a lot of different hunts where I was bow hunting and successful or rifle hunting and taking a blind approach where you're stalking an animal where they have no ability to see you coming. Sometimes, you know, the quick and easy route is the one that's like, well, they might see us, but they might not be paying attention. You know, I do like to keep tabs on the animal. When you take a blind approach, you kind of, you lose track of where they're at. If they move, it can get difficult or you just don't know where they go. But if they don't know you're there, you have a lot better chance of, of getting a shot off. And I also credit that to that first shot didn't work. The arrow was like broke halfway to the animal. I'm glad I didn't send it through my hand or something like that. Part of the shaft through my hand as it flexes. So I, if you're not familiar with this, what happens is like if you have a crack in a carbon fiber arrow, they tend to break. Well, when you shoot your bow, all that energy goes into the arrow and it flexes. Well, if it has a crack in it, it flexes and snaps the arrow in half. And so that can lead to a lot of problems. Sometimes it snaps before leaving the bow and it'll send part of the arrow into somebody's hand or it can be dangerous. That's why like if you miss a target, you flex and bend the arrow because if it chips, from like let's say you're on a 3D shoot and you hit the ground or whatever. I, I do it even when I, every time I hit the target, I always flex my arrows before putting them back in my quiver because just other arrows hitting your arrows or an arrow gets old, whatever. It can happen and it happened. That was the first time and the only time since that I've had that happen shooting at a game animal that I know of. You know, I had, I didn't really know what went on in the moment. I just knew that like, that's what I thought happened. And then when I looked at the video, that's exactly what happened later on. You know, a blind approach and and I really attribute getting that second shot to them not having any clue I was there. And so I was able to get that second shot off and ended up with a mountain goat because if that wasn't the case if they had seen us coming or maybe i would have got that first shot off and then be clued into us i don't think i would have ever got that second shot and because of that i was successful on the mountain goat hunt and took a goat with my bow to pull off a successful stock a lot of things need to go right doesn't matter what you're hunting with rifle bow muzzleloader traditional bow compound it just doesn't really matter a lot of things need to go right and there's a lot of ways that a stock can get blown now i think that the perfect stock is one where the animal has no clue that you're there if you're if you're shooting at an animal that has no clue that you're even within proximity you've done your job on the spot and stock hunt and that doesn't happen all the time but everything needs to go right and by everything going right you have to be unseen unheard and unsmelled, unwinded. Now, this week we're talking about being unseen because there's a lot of parts of the hunt where 
you can kind of fudge it a little bit where you go, okay, I, I got to cross through this open. They might see me, but they might not. As I always say, I like to go the best way, not the easy way. And oftentimes going the best way means not ever allowing the animal to be aware of my presence. Now, sometimes things happen. You get spotted at range. You get spotted moving from one spot to another, what have you, right? But this week we're going to talk about how to move in unseen. And there's six major things with things going right and things going wrong that I think about when I'm planning a stock and going to make a move on an animal. If I've got an animal spotted across a canyon, okay, it's stock planting time. What am I going to do? I'm going to make that approach and it's going to be a blind approach. As I'm crawling in, one of the things I think about is blocking the eye. I like to get low. I like to go slow. At certain times, I need to freeze. And then also, I think that there is a use for camouflage. So we're going to dive into these six things. The first we're going to talk about is the blind approach. Now, what I mean by a blind approach is this is an approach in, in the stock planning phase of the hunt and during the move-in where the animal has no ability to see you because it's completely blocked from view. Now, this is good and bad, right? There's a, The good thing about it is, like in that mountain goat hunt, we came up from the other side of the mountain, we were peeking over the cliff. There's no way on the entire route that we took that they would have been able to see us. They were completely obscured by a mountain. That's great because they can't see the person stalking in. It's bad for the person stalking in because if they move, you can't see them. So there's a, a positive and a negative to the blind approach. The positive is they can't see you. You're going to move in with being unseen. The negative is you can't see them. And if they move, you won't know unless you had somebody maybe spotting and, and directing or guiding you in. On most hunts, that's not possible. I would say on 99% of the hunts that I'm on, I'm either alone or it's just not possible for that kind of scenario to plan out. Now, I still choose the blind approach or I choose a like a, a blind approach where I can continue to check in on the animal, where I can peek over the ridge and see if they're still there, then move up a little more, then peek back in. A blind approach is great uh, and often lends itself to my favorite kind of stock, which is from above. And I've talked about this before. I know people that go maybe sheep hunting are like, if you get above a sheep, it they run. But if you come in from below, they often might chill out a little bit. But for the most part, I think that a stock from above is more advantageous to the hunter. And I've talked about that in past uh, podcasts, especially when it comes to stock planning and planning the perfect stock. But it also lends itself to a blind approach better where it's harder for the animal to see you. You have more options for moving in and you have more option for getting close, especially if we're talking about bow hunting. Now I plan my rifle stocks and my archery stocks completely different because in archery stock, you have to get a lot closer. You have to get that proximity in, whereas a, a rifle stock might be the same thing, a blind approach, but I'd be shooting across the canyon where I can pop up and, and shoot across at them as opposed to being on the same hillside as them. But the bonus of the blind approach is they don't know you're coming at any portion of the stock. Now, this is especially useful like for pronghorn hunting where you might have to cross this big flat, right? You go, okay, in order to get into position for this, I can cross this spot and they might see me, but they're kind of far away and I don't think they'll notice. Well, 
if they do notice, then they're on edge and the rest of your stock is going to suffer. So I really like to find that approach where, okay, they can't see me coming. I will say though, there are distances where animals, you know, you can cross in more open spot if you move slow. Like there's, there are those approaches where that's your option. You've got to do it. And so there's some other tactics that we can use to still move in unseen. One of those tactics is distance, right? There's certain animals that have a distance that they're paying attention. If you're like a, a mile away from an elk, they don't care. You know, they don't, same with mule deer. Now I would say that that's not the case for every animal. Pronghorn, I've had pronghorn that seemed to be that 12, 14, 1600 yards close to that mile range and they see you and they just start to move off. There's been times where I've been scouting sheep, uh, one in particular that I was scouting sheep. I wasn't in any kind of camouflage. I was wearing like a blue shirt and I was a long ways away and they just picked me out and ran away. I didn't know that about sheep. They did not like that blue shirt at all. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, why did they run? I've never had sheep that spooked. And then I noticed what I was wearing. I thought, well, they probably saw me. Uh, that was my only assumption, right? But yeah, a, a blind approach or you can be semi-blind based on distance. Uh, now, if you can't, there are, there's certain stocks where like you cannot get into range without some serious crawling, some serious getting in close through some open country. So what are other ways to go unseen? The next is what I call blocking the eye. And I've, I've talked about this in the past, but I wanted to combine it all into this entire philosophy of being unseen. So blocking the eye, what that means is you might be, this is especially helpful in very open country where you've got an animal that's bedded down. Let's say you're bow hunting and you're going to get within range. Maybe they're out in the open. Maybe you're out in the open. Well, if you can't see their eye, they can't see you. And that's one of the things that I think about a lot is like a mantra that I taught myself very early on that if I can block the eye, I can block the animal. And there's one thing that I would tell my clients as they're stalking in when I was guiding, especially guiding guys that had never done a spot and stock hunt. And I'm like, all right, now go sneak in on this bedded mule deer. And most of the guys would just blow it like right away. It's because they'd never done it before. And I go, well, could he see you? Oh, yeah, I don't You know, they just wouldn't know. Or they would be too timid. They wouldn't get close enough. And then the animal would get up and move, right? And I'm like, well, you could have moved in closer if you can block the eye. Like if everything else, if you can be quiet and the wind's good, if if you, their eye's blocked, like let's say there's a tree and you can position that one tree or that one rock to where their eye is, then that allows you to move in. There was a caribou that I stalked in Alaska and it was just bedded out in the open. I used its body to block its head and then crawled in. It was actually sleeping for a lot of the stock, but for some of the stock, it was not sleeping. I just had to use its, its the, like a rock. There was like one rock and I could position myself behind this one rock and then block its head. And then I would use its rear end to block its head. Although some animals can see almost nearly behind themselves. And then it fell asleep and that gave me a really good advantage to, to crawl in as well. But so many stocks I can think of where I would almost think, oh, I can't get away with this stock. Like I'm, it's wide open, but there's something that allows me to block its eye. And that goes, okay, I can look through my binoculars. I can see that its, it's vision is obstructed. 
okay, I can move in this path. And that allows me to continue to be unseen. Now, the next one is getting low. You know, I think a lot of stocks are ruined because people don't want to crawl. There's a lot of stocks that you can pull off that you just have to crawl. And it's difficult. It's uncomfortable. It like works. I'll tell you what. I could definitely right now go on a 10-mile hike before crawling 400 yards. I would be a lot more sore crawling 400 yards, 500 yards. It's uncomfortable. It's it's difficult. Your neck's in a weird position. Man, I feel like I get beat up after spot and stock antelope hunting because I just do so much crawling. But getting really low, crawling and being out of that level of eyesight is a really good way to go and see. And you can actually cover ground in stuff that seems very, very open by getting low and crawling. I attribute a lot of spot and stock, especially mule deer hunting success to my propensity for crawling. And I just kind of thought like, yeah, everybody crawls in on stock. And then I'll watch people stock and they they get up and they, they're doing a different kind of crawl or they're crouching over. And it's like, they didn't take the time or maybe just didn't want to go through the, pain and suffering of literally crawling where it's like they get busted and the animal runs out oh dang that that's a bummer whereas i kind of take the philosophy is like i'm gonna be unseen and i'm gonna be uncomfortable if that's the case but getting low you can sneak in on a lot of stuff that maybe you don't think you can by just crawling like belly crawling and it's hard with a bow sometimes i'll throw my bow on my back i use a bow sling a lot and i'll sling it over my chest and then I'll hold the bow on my back and then I can crawl. Other times I'm just pushing the bow forward and then crawling up to it, putting the bow forward, crawling up to it. But getting low allows you to be out of that threshold of perception and gets you in closer. Same thing with rifle hunting though. Like you're at that final, however many yards, two, 300 yards and guys will be like just hunched over and kind of rush to the spot to shoot instead of maybe dropping their pack behind the ridge, crawling up, and then moving the pack, sliding their pack up, they'll just kind of crawl in that position where they could be seen easily as opposed to staying low where they're going to be less likely to be noticed or completely unseen by just staying low and getting into position that way. I don't know how many stocks I've seen blown or or even myself have blown stocks just getting hasty and like, all right, I'm just going to have my pack on and hunched over and crawl up to this shooting position. Now, boom, deer's got me pegged. It's like, damn it. I just messed up. Now, maybe you could get a shot off in time. Maybe you can't. But whatever happens, the outcome is slightly altered. You've given yourself less time and a lower percentage chance of it working out because the animal knows you're there. Whether you can make it happen or not, it would have been a better option to be unseen. Now, the next one is is go slow. There are times where you can be in a position where an animal could see you, but I think the best way to describe would be below the threshold of perception. And I kind of stole that phrase when I was doing this apex predator show. Uh, One of the experts, we were talking about alligators and the way that an alligator hunts. And it's this idea of an alligator hunts by really looking like a log, but when they move in, they move in so slow that it's, beyond this threshold of like, this is a threat. It, it just seems like in the natural world, there's things moving around all the time. There's birds, there's other animals. And you notice like 
you can watch a group of deer and then some elk walk out and they might not even think twice about those elk, but a person walks out and bam, danger, run away. Or, you know, there, there could be other animals walking around. Like I, I've seen this a ton of times in the, in the high desert where it's like, oh, there's sage hen walking up above these deer and maybe sometimes they'll look at them and then they look away. It's like, it doesn't really bother them. Well, the same thing can be for a person sneaking in. If you go beyond that threshold of perception where it's like you're moving slow enough in those times where you could be seen that it doesn't catch the attention. One of the things that blows the stock more than anything is movement and especially fast movement, but animals are more keyed into movement than anything. You know, I, I think in a lot of circumstances, right? And we're going to talk about camouflage as the last one because in most of these setups, right, camouflage plays not a big part in being unseen because you're moving in where they have no option to see you. And the same goes for movement, especially when it comes to elk. I like to think of elk as the T-Rex of like Jurassic Park, elk or the T-Rex in that movie. It's like, if you freeze, they don't know you're there. And so if you're going slow enough, right, it's not something that you know, it's like they could potentially see you. Like you could see their eye, they could see you. Maybe you're within that range that they would still find you uncomfortable, but you're moving slow enough that in this particular instance, they don't really care. They don't pick it up as a threat. So they don't focus in. They actually don't see you even though they could see you. And then that transitions into the idea of freezing. Now, freezing is when, okay, maybe you were moving and you may be moving a little too fast and they do see you. Or they have, you know, something eating, picks its head up and looks your way. You go from going slow to freezing. That's where you lay down and you don't move. Because if you aren't moving, at some point, they're either going to go away because they figure it out, oh, the jig's up. Or you stayed still long enough, they're like, oh, maybe I saw something, but it's not something that's a threat to me. I'll just go back to doing what I'm doing. And, you know, it, it might not fully meet the being unseen, but when you freeze, you kind of blend in and, and disappear and you can get forgot about. The biggest deer I ever killed was because I... I had the deer walking up toward me, a group of deer. One of them could have seen me, I think probably did see me. I, and I laid there for, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes. I don't, I don't even remember at this point. Seemed like forever uh, without moving, just laid on the ground. And they finally went back to their thing and they all moved off and didn't spook. And the big buck ended up bedding below me. If I'd blown him out right there or been moving or, or tried to continue to move when one of them maybe thought they saw something, I would have, blown the whole hunt but instead I froze I was patient and I just laid there still and went unseen like I was saying it works great for elk I've been sitting up vertical and had cow elk walk spitting distance from me just by sitting still and not moving you can be invisible in plain sight by just being unseen without moving and then the last one is camouflage and you know like I said there is an approach where if you don't move, if you, if you get in there right, if you did everything right, it might not even matter. However, there are those times that you're in the open and being able to blend in does make a difference. I do like to wear camouflage when I bow hunt. It almost seems to be like an unpopular thing to say these days, but I enjoy wearing camouflage. You know what? I'm not afraid to say it. I like camouflage. 
especially when it comes to bow hunting. And, and I do, I also hunt in solid colors. You know, I, I think that there's, I think it's, there's good and bad, right? Like if you pull off the stock, right? Camouflage shouldn't matter. I stocked into five yards on a deer this year in solids. Like it's like, cause I did a blind approach. They blocked its eye. It was below me and I did everything right. And camouflage would not have made a difference in that scenario. I like the right approach. However, there are a few instances where I've been crossing a, a big open. I can think of one in particular that I was like, whoa, this camouflage stuff works really well. I was in New Zealand. I was crossing this big scree field and it wasn't even an animal that I was stalking. It was just an animal. It's like, I like camouflage for the animals that I'm not stalking, the ones that I didn't know were there. That's really what, in my opinion, what camouflage is good for is the animals that you didn't know were there. And uh, this group of tar kind of like popped up out of nowhere, came around the corner and I was in the wide open. I just laid down. I did the freeze thing. And they, they'd seen me move, but I just kind of laid there long enough that I effectively disappeared. Now, whether the camouflage allowed me to disappear, I think that it did because I blended in pretty well. I had a friend of mine watching from afar. He's like, dude, you just vanished in that stuff. And it makes a difference. You know, I prefer like a more disruptive camouflage pattern where it really breaks up the outline. You know, I think over the years I've noticed just some camouflage gets really dark at distance so it's like it looks good up close right or maybe you know i think a lot of camouflage is designed for or was originally designed for like white tail hunting in the woods and it, it matched the trees and whatever and you're up against something dark well that makes sense but when you're in the wide open right and you've got camouflage that's really dark at distance you just become this black blob that's also the outline of a human whereas if it's a little bit more spaced out and broken up and lighter, it tends to break up your outline a little bit and breaking up that outline makes you go unseen. It's like, oh, I don't see anything there or I did see something, but I no longer see it. Therefore, the stock can continue and whatever maybe saw you that wasn't supposed to see you goes back to feeding and doesn't blow out the deer that you're, you're chasing. So I think that there is definitely, you know, some bonuses to having camouflage, especially when we're, trying to get super close. I like the safety. I feel like I feel stealthy in it. You know, <laughs> I think some of this mindset, right? You just like, you feel good. You look good. You, you're stealthy. You're like, all right. If I'm like sitting up and I'm blend into the background, well, that's another way to be unseen. So I could be in plain sight, but also be unseen. And so I think by taking a blind approach, blocking the eye, getting low, going slow, freezing when need to be, and then effectively using camouflage or blocking your outline with something. Those are really good ways to get into position on big game animals unseen. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. You know, one of the things that I love talking about is how to sneak in on animals. I feel like that's one of my favorite things about Western big game hunting is the stock portion of spot and stock hunting. And it is in art form in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of things that you need to consider. So it's never too early to start talking about those tactics and get people's minds thinking about, okay, I've got a tag. How am I going to get into position on this particular animal, especially when we're talking about bow hunting, but it's, it's really with anything, you know, if you start to neglect the little things, whether you've got a rifle or whatever, that's when you start to, to make mistakes and, and turn a maybe a sure deal into a not so sure deal. 
And I think that like just thinking about it in those ways of, okay, like breaking it down, how do I go unseen? How do I go unheard? How do I not get winded? Like thinking about the important things of what pulls off a successful stock and then checking the box for all those little things. That's how you have those consistently successful hunts where you go out and you might get that one opportunity and you make good on that one opportunity you're given. You know, it's the beginning of February and we talked a lot. I got a ton of great response on the the podcast talking about application season, gaming the draw, a lot of good. I think there was a, a lot of, I just really enjoyed the response from you guys of finding that valuable when I sit down and record these podcasts, I don't really know what resonates with people. And, and actually at the wild sheep show, it was, it was awesome to be able to, I was as exhibiting there and just getting to talk to a lot of people. And that was one of the things that people kept bringing up. It was like, I really liked those episodes. Those were some of my favorite episodes, which surprised me because you're always like, okay, it's a hunting tips and tactics podcast, but it's very important to figure out how to draw tags, right? <laughs> like that's, if you don't get the tag, you don't get to go on the hunt. You don't get to do all these stalking tactics if you don't have any tags in your pocket. So thank you guys so much, everyone that that reached out and, and we chatted about that because, you know, it helps me think, okay, people understand what we're doing and they really find value in in these particular episodes as well. So I think that those, those were fun to do and I, I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. I got a lot of messages about those podcasts being very valuable to people. As a reminder, you know, it's, it's still applications. If you, if you miss those, it's not too late. I did them early intentionally because we still have a lot of time and a lot of different states to apply for. If you don't have a Go Hunt Insider membership, I think that that's key for just giving you the resource to do it, you know? It's a product out there that makes it, it's something that I use. I mean, it's how I plan my hunts. It's a very, very useful product. It's like, all right, it's something that you probably should be using. It's like we have mapping software, we have maps. It's like, it'd be like going on a hunt without a map or without, like there's resources available to you now that maybe weren't available to you or weren't available to me when I started. And I think that's a really good resource uh, the Insider is what I use. It's got the filtering where you can go through and, and select different categories. And one of the questions I did get was like, how do you use filtering? Like, what are some of the things that you look for? And what I might look for, the way that I use filtering depends on every state, every hunt, how many points I have and other things, right? Sometimes I actually do the opposite of what someone might think. Like, you might think, find the biggest bull and like sometimes you can slide that slider like 380 and 100% success, right? And that's maybe not what I'm looking for because I know, oh, that's probably going to be difficult to draw. But I might go, hey, what's an area that has like 250 to 300 inch bull elk and has low success? Why would I want low success? Well, maybe that's an area that I want to say like, okay, is it easier to draw in there? Is it an area like, why would there maybe be low success? Is it a tough wilderness hunt and just maybe most people aren't getting after it is it an area where there's a lot of private land, but there is some public land is it an area where there's a lot of public land and not much private land. Like what are some of the things that I might look for? I often look for an area with low hunter density, like maybe a fewer tags. So it just depends on what you're looking for. Also, there's certain hunts that I look for. I go, well, I really want a good chance of drawing, but I don't need to guarantee it. So maybe I'm like 
Let's try 60% success for drawing. Or there's other hunts where I go like, hey man, on this hunt, I'm going out. I really just want to bring home some meat. Uh, what's an area with, maybe it's an archery hunt with a high success rate. You go, okay, there's probably a lot of animals there. I've got a short amount of time. That seems like an area that is really appealing to me this year for this particular tag. Every hunt for me is different. So the way that I do filtering just depends. And then the way that I do draws is just kind of try to find that little, for my particular point level, what hunt I would fit into. And I will mention that like I use the point tracker to help with this. So if I put, if you put, if you aren't familiar with it, for those of you that are new to it, if you put your points in their point tracker, what it does is when you go to do any draw odds or whatever for the state, it automatically sets it up for your point level. So it, you don't have to continually go in there and look it up and, and put them in for everything. And then I can switch between my wife and myself. So I can kind of gauge, you know, her draws and my draws and, and go that way. So that's the way that I use it. As always, you can use code LiveWild for a discount. What you end up getting is some money back in the gear shop. So just put Live Wild in the code and you actually get some money in the gear shop to spend. And you can always use that code for a discount on gear as well. And then one more reminder, you know, if you liked this podcast on spot and stock, if you're interested in archery, spot and stock, mule deer hunting, haven't watched my outdoor class on archery, mule deer hunting, a lot of these tips and tactics are in there and broken down. So I think that, you know, the idea of planning a stock is, is that's a good way to see it. If you haven't seen it, I put that one out last year, but there's also a lot of other great content on there and looking forward to, to getting some more outdoor class stuff out this coming year. So you can use code live wild on that as well for a discount on outdoor class. But I just think that those are, those are really good resources. If you guys are interested in that as well, I'm just going to say until next week, be unseen. Well, unless you're crossing the street, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe look out for cars and be seen if, if one's coming at you, but in the woods, you can be unseen. Well, unless you need to get like, unless you've been out there too long and you haven't been, you've been lost. I don't know. It's still, we're going to call it awkward. Goodbye. Be unseen. 